This is Hawang. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. With the January 27th retirement announcement of Stephen Breyer, President Biden, consistent with his campaign pledge to choose a black woman to the court, nominated U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Last week, Judge Brown-Jackson sat before the Senate confirmation hearings, where viewers could observe Democratic senators celebrating the historic nature of her nomination, Republicans probing for vulnerabilities, and both sides grandstanding for campaign clips. Nevertheless, Judge Brown-Jackson deftly navigated the hearings, offering even those who study the court only small glimpses of her view of the Constitution and the role of the court. Interestingly, in her answers, she included a nod to an originalist view that, quote, the Constitution is fixed in its meaning, unquote, and that original public meaning is a, quote, limitation on my authority to import my own policy, unquote. Could this nominee disappoint her Democrat supporters by becoming an independent or less progressive jurist on the Supreme Court? Or were the hearings a carefully crafted rhetorical exercise designed to facilitate the consent of an activist judge? My guest today is legal scholar and executive director for Georgetown Center for the Constitution, Ilya Shapiro. Mr. Shapiro's research and writing, including his recent book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court, have established him as among the foremost scholars on the history and composition of the Supreme Court. Mr. Shapiro will share with us his view on what impact Judge Brown Jackson will have on the court as Justice Breyer's replacement, and on which constitutional questions she's most likely to have an effect. When I return, I'll be joined by constitutional scholar, Ilya Shapiro. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by legal scholar and executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution, Ilya Shapiro. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Ilya. Good to be back with you, Joe. Uh, now, uh, first uh, things first, I think I recently read that your uh, recent bestseller, uh, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations uh, and the Politics of America's Highest Court, is now coming to paperback. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Uh, July 5th, it's always a Tuesday, so July 5th. Uh, I just finished writing the epilogue. Uh, we're going to have to correct uh, or you know, fill in the final vote margin for uh, Judge Jackson when she's uh, almost certainly confirmed and maybe a couple of other as of this writing tidbits. Uh, but 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 yes, the uh, you can get the hardcover cheap these days on Amazon and elsewhere, but the <laughs> updated paperback will be uh, available in a few months. Yes, if you you choose your books by how much they weigh, the, the certainly the the uh, hardcover is superior. Um, now uh, that's a good uh, segue. I want to uh, before we jump into uh, the new nomination of uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, I want to uh, acknowledge the remarkable past couple of months you've had um, some uh, controversy, I suppose. I, I guess until the uh, the slap on the. Uh, uh, awards ceremony the other day. Uh, you, it took you out of the uh, headlines, and now we have something else to talk about. Uh, but um, I want to address uh, the controversy about uh, regarding the tweet that you made after you, uh, you know, in, in reference to President Biden's commitment and promise to choose a black woman as his nominee for the next Supreme Court justice uh, to replace uh, Judge Breyer. You've made many media appearances. You've got a sizable Twitter uh, following. Uh, take us through how uh, you went uh, from being a very sort of balanced um, a media uh, pundit to uh, making, a, let's say, an inartful tweet. 
Yeah, that was um, a failure of my own communication that I've I've kicking been kicking myself for because I do pride myself on uh, being clear and uh, a good communicator in both writing and and orally. Um, that day, when news of Justice Breyer's retirement leaked in late January, I was on a trip. I was in Austin, Texas. I've been doing some media uh, all day, put out a, a statement and a blog post. Uh, and obviously, you know, when you do what I do, this is this is the the Super Bowl. Whenever there's a vacancy, that's uh, you know uh, you're on. And I was um, getting more and more upset about uh, President Biden reiterating a commitment that he had made when he was uh, on the campaign trail in the primaries to appoint a black woman. I thought it was. Um, offensive and inappropriate, I still do, uh, to restrict an applicant pool for a high office or any office for that matter by race, gender, immutable characteristics. Uh, but uh, late night in my hotel room as I was doom scrolling through that hell site known as Twitter, um, I, I fired off a hot take uh, and uh, thought about, you know, if I was a Democratic president, who would I appoint to most advance kind of a, a progressive legal agenda? And I thought it would be Chief Judge uh, Sri Srinivasan of the uh, D.C. Circuit, a colleague of of Judge Jackson's. Uh, well, and that means that everybody else in the entire universe is less qualified, in my view, than him. And you know, we can debate that. Um, uh, but because of the the uh, narrowing of the criteria that President Biden put on, uh, you know, he was only considering black women. And so I said that it's unfortunate uh, that uh, we'll be left with uh, quote a lesser black woman. Uh, and those three words were what got me in hot water. The next, I then went to bed after firing that off. Uh, and the, the when I woke up the next morning, all hell had broken loose. And uh, eventually, I was uh, onboarded uh, at Georgetown, uh, but immediately placed on leave, which I'm still on. They're investigating uh, whether my tweet violated various university policies. Um, but uh, but here we are. Um, I stand by the sentiment that that. Restricting a choice of a Supreme Court justice by race and gender is inappropriate, but uh, I right away uh, admitted that it was uh, uh, poorly phrased, inartful, uh, took it down, um, and and here we are. All of a sudden, I've become a, a poster boy for for cancel culture, but I've I've tried to focus on the substance of the Supreme Court battles and uh, and other issues, and indeed. Um, uh, there have been a number of uh, protests, disruptions, obstructions, cancellations of uh, events at law schools and elsewhere this spring, one of my own at UC Hastings, but also Yale, uh, University of Michigan, a few others. So there's kind of this, this intersection of the, the larger debate about freedom of speech uh, and our, the incivility of our national discourse combined with uh, a Supreme Court confirmation battle. Oh, I, uh, I live here in uh, deep blue uh, Massachusetts. I have many people, um, friends who are on the other side of the progressive universe. Uh, I'm not looking for uh, any sort of excuses or anything to mitigate um, your remarks or, or uh, be an apologist for you. But uh, in my conversation with them, I, I think they see the world differently. Uh, whereas you uh, characterize one of the candidates you would see as the top of the pyramid of a very small group of people who you see as uniquely qualified to be to serve on the on the Supreme Court. Imagine a giant pyramid of talent. Uh, in their view, there's literally dozens, perhaps hundreds of people who are qualified to serve on the Supreme Court. And instead, you know, given that large pool of potential applicants, surely within that group, there may be a qualified uh, black female. Um, that's their view that, you know, in a sense, one does not need to compromise uh, when one chooses uh, a nomination, a nominee by uh, a race or sex. Uh, what would you say to that? Well, there are, there are plenty of people qualified to be on the Supreme Court. I don't know whether if it's hundreds, it's it's 
certainly dozens. Um, and um, among them are uh, many black women or, or, or several, depending on, on how, you, how you count. Uh, but it's a, a rather finite universe. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, I, my tweet was, it's incorrect, I think, logically to read uh, what I said to say that no black woman is qualified to be on the Supreme Court. I was just making the point that um, uh, I happen to think that the most qualified, the best pick uh, is one Sri Srinivasan, who happens to be Indian American, an immigrant actually, um, would be the first Asian American, was one of the shortlisters for President Obama on the, the pick that eventually went to Merrick Garland, um, uh, which means that everyone else is less qualified. And again, the, the lesser formulation is, is unfortunate. Uh, but, um, you know, I think Biden would have been much better off not saying that, not making that commitment, and eventually still picking Judge Jackson. Uh, that would have been a, a different sort of scenario. Um, and anyway, at this point, I, I'm certainly, it's not my position that she's not qualified to be uh, on the Supreme Court or for the for, for, for that matter, the other shortlisters uh, who were mentioned, Leandra Kruger and, and Michelle Childs. Um, I still maintain that Sri Srinivasan would have been a better choice, um, but uh, that doesn't imply that uh, uh, no one else is qualified. Well, um, let me just go down there a little bit further, and, and then we'll uh, shift gears to uh, the, the current nominee. Uh, you're um, openly a, a libertarian-minded uh, a public intellectual and um, one who perhaps uh, favors nominees who lean more towards a strict constructionist or the right-leaning um, um, uh, uh, justices. Had uh, the president taken your advice and chosen this uh, this uh, judge, Srinivasan, Boston? Uh, wouldn't that have uh, had the effect of pulling the court further left? In other words, you would have, you know, given the, you know, Babe Ruth to the uh, to the Yankees, or I don't know who you root for, but you're essentially uh, making a, a stronger case for um, a, a point of view that you oppose. I think that's probably right. Um, I think uh, if if I am correct, and again, this is debatable. Different people can analyze things differently. But if I'm correct that Judge Srinivasan would be the strongest a choice for a Democratic president, then indeed having him on the court would pull the court um, more to the left because of the force of his advocacy or uh, or, or what have you. Um, uh, although, you know, who knows? There's different calculus in here. Every time you switch out of justice, it, it changes the, the internal dynamic and not just because of who's more to the left or the right than anyone else, but who is more friendly, who can convince other justices or negotiate compromises or, uh, or what have you. Um, uh, it's not necessarily the case that the most uh, left-wing pick would generate a move to the left for the court because maybe that person would uh, put off some of the more centrist conservatives, the John Roberts or Brett Kavanaugh or, or something like that. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know. Nor would it mean that I would necessarily vote for Judge Srinivasan because I think judicial philosophy is important. And, um, you know, if at the end of the day, I, I think a, a judge's uh, judicial philosophy isn't the... Um, isn't my cup of tea, then I think, or any senator should make that judgment for his or him or herself. I think that's a valid reason for voting against a nominee. We're going to talk a lot about uh, judicial philosophy. And again, in conversations with those of my friends who are on the more progressive side of, of things, uh, they would characterize, let's say, a more right-leaning or um, a conservative view of, of the Constitution and the Supreme Court as being sort of a, generated from a a worldview of those who have privilege and power, uh, clearly is suggesting that that's, that's your background. 
I find your background, uh, once I learned more about it, to be extraordinary, uh, anything but coming from a universe of privilege and power. You, If you don't mind me sharing, I know you were born in Moscow uh, and it took a long, circuitous trip here to be uh, where you are. Uh, briefly, and only as far as you're comfortable, share with our listeners the fact that yours was not a, a primrose path or a, a beautiful, uh, um, e- easy path to go by. Well, first of all, I, I would certainly challenge the idea that you have to be come from from privilege or or something to to either be conservative politically or uh, or, or libertarian or or to be an originalist. Um, you know, for that matter, um, you know, I I was born in the Soviet Union and and we left because my parents didn't like uh, uh, autocratic, arbitrary rule. Uh, you know, they taught me the rule of law is what you want. You want equal treatment under the law and, and what the law says should go equally for everyone and the law should be clear. And that's what originalism and textualism is all about. It's about the rule of law rather than, um, you know, bending legal outcomes or policy outcomes to whatever uh, the person in power, the people in power want uh, on any given uh, occasion. Um, but yeah, my, my background, we, we were, uh, you know, uh, uh, immigrants to Canada um, and my parents restarted their lives in the middle of their lives. I was four when we came over. Um, and, um, you know, my, my, my dad's family, my mom's family, both due to anti-Semitism and general autocracy suffered uh, greatly under, under communism. Um, and I've always been, uh, I guess, what uh, we could call a striver, always trying to do really well in school and, and better myself and seek opportunity. And so go to the best uh, educational uh, institutions that I could and, 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 and so forth. So, yeah, um, I've, uh, you know, I've been proud of, of, uh, you know, the, the opportunities that I've been able to achieve and, and, and very grateful to my parents for the sacrifices they made. Indeed. Well, thank you for that. The, um, so let's focus our conversation on, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination and the, uh, and her, um, hearing in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, I'm a layman. I watched, uh, but, but I have great concerns about uh, the the makeup of the court. I watched it, uh, not cover to cover, but just about. Uh, I'll just say uh, at a 10,000 feet view, um, uh, Judge Brown Jackson was a very likable, uh, comfortable in the hearings. Her style and demeanor is, is, is very uh, friendly, easy to like, uh, regardless of uh, her opinions. Do you think that had a, a, an effect on the, the reason was that one of the reasons she may have been chosen, meaning she would have been the easiest nominee to uh, be to, to generate consensus in some way. Well, she's certainly been through confirmation hearings before uh, and was known as being uh, likable and gracious and poised. So certainly helped herself in those hearings by showing those characteristics, somewhat akin to um, how Amy Coney Barrett uh, behaved and I think sold herself well when she was uh, on the public stage. Um, it doesn't seem to have changed any minds. Uh, uh, you know, no Republicans that were otherwise uh, disposed against her are like, oh, well, it turns out that she's a, a nice person. In fact, Ben Sass said she's, you know, great and wonderful, and I commend her achievements, but I disagree with her judicial philosophy, so I'm going to vote against her. That was the clearest exposition uh, of that point. And, and as we're recording this, only one Republican, Susan Collins, who has voted for every nominee by, by parties, by presidents of both parties, that have come up other than Barrett because she didn't like the timing of that one. Uh, so she's a yes, but otherwise there's only two potential gettable Republicans left who haven't declared. That's uh, Lisa Murkowski and, and Mitt Romney. So we were talking, this is going to be a 51, 52, or 53 vote to confirm. Um, so, you know, it seems like, you know, maybe she marginally helped herself in the court of public opinion, uh, if you will. But uh, at the end of the day, 
Um, you know, this is part of why I write in my book that hearings have become kabuki theater and they are uh, overall a net negative, I think, for the public discourse. And I think every hearing, uh, everyone who pays attention kind of has to or participates has to kind of take a shower afterwards. We're all lowered into the muck of, uh, you know, the the, the, the mudslinging and and uh, uh, a hearing, a Seinfeldian hearing about nothing, if you will. Well, we're going to try to stay above the, the fray here and uh, and talk about um uh, now, much has been made about the fact that uh, were she confirmed, which she is likely to be confirmed, um, she would be the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Uh, but she also has an interesting background that uh, adds to the diversity of the court. She's, she's uh, the only current uh, person with then uh, experience as a public defender. Um, that's rare. And um, I think it's even a, it's something Cato's advocated for in the past. I remember reading an article where uh, more civil rights or, or um uh, defenders of the public ought to be on the Supreme Court. That's a, that's a good fit for someone with a libertarian uh, point of view. Do you see uh, her role as a public defender is, is useful to the court in some way? Uh, I think experiential diversity is uh, very useful and, and would be very helpful and, and um, more important and more, more telling than just, you know, uh, people with different colored skin that all uh, think the same or, or, or something like that, the superficial um, uh, diversity. Um, she was a public defender, an appellate public defender for, for two years, um, which is something that, that nobody else on the court uh, had done. Also, she was a, a district judge, a trial-level uh, judge in the federal system for seven years. Only Justice Sotomayor had been a district judge. So, uh, yeah, it's good to have people with, with, with different experiences. You know, we, don't, we haven't had a politician in a very long time. We used to appoint senators and governors and Senator Day O'Connor had been a a, a mid-level appellate judge in Arizona's state system, but she had been a uh, in the state legislature had been a uh, an elected official. Um, but since then, it's been all all circuit judges uh, basically uh, with you know, similar backgrounds as law firm partners or prosecutors. Uh, so it's um, yeah, I think it's it's good. Uh, you know, all other things being equal, it's it's nice to have someone with different kinds of experience. So I'm going to continue my line of, of questioning as, as some uh, as a sort of defender of, of this nomination. Um, I was encouraged by uh, some of her testimony that asserted it sounded very uh, sort of uh, conservative in its tone, uh, strict, strict constructionist, if you will. In fact, I, I wrote down a part of her testimony. Uh, she stated that, quote, I believe that the Constitution is fixed in its meeting. Uh, the original public meaning of the words is a limitation on my authority to import my own policy. Uh, to me, that sounds uh, like music to your ears. In other words, the law is written down. It says what it says, and a judge's uh, role is to apply, you know, the facts of the case to the law as it's written. Is this uh, potentially a budding uh, uh, originalist such as uh, Scalia? No, but <laughs> that was an important moment. Uh, first of all, I have to correct you. Twice now, you've used the term "strict constructionist." That was. Uh, sort of the the proto originalism nomenclature from back in Nixon's day when he was running against okay. the Warren Court in sixty. I'm not quite that old. Though. <laughs> I, I know, but it's it's as Scalia used to say. I'm not a strict constructionist. I'm not a loose constructionist. I want the <laughs> statutes to be construed for reasonably for you know. So that the point of the matter isn't to uh, uh, you know to to have an overly narrow or or technical or literalist. Um, uh, uh, interpretation that can sometimes lead to absurdity, but a but a reasonable one by by what the words mean uh, when enacted, whether whether a statute or or a constitutional provision. But anyway, um, that was an interesting point. Randy Barnett had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal um, the day after the hearing concluded, talking about how quote unquote we're all originalists now, 
And it's interesting that she used that formulation. The law is fixed. Uh, At one point, she commended Justice Scalia for having essentially won the debate that originalism is the central uh, mode of, of judicial analysis. She didn't have to do that. Right. The Democrats right, have the majority. Right. She, you know, had the votes as long as she kept, you know, executing the playbook of talking a lot without saying very much. Um, so why did she say that? Uh, that's more telling, I think, about society and the nature of our uh, political culture than about her. It means that uh, originalism has become a norm and one has to pay lip service to it, at least to um you know, as part of uh, the the gauntlet that you run as a as a Supreme Court nominee, I think that's important. It does met, track uh, what I've seen in opinion polls that the public, um, when when read, you know, not saying you know who it's affiliated with, but read statements of uh, uh, describing what originalism or textualism is, uh, they prefer that to whether it's a living constitution or a pragmatism or as Justice Breyer just demonstrated this week in a case where he was a sole dissenter in a in a otherwise very obscure technical uh, federal arbitration case. But he, he wanted to look at the purpose of the law and kind of its spirit you know, rather than the plain text. Um, uh, people, for what it's worth, uh, the public prefers uh, the formulation of uh, reading the law for its original public meaning, for the text on the page, et cetera. What uh, Judge Jackson um, uh, uh, said. Um, so I don't think she is the next coming of, of Scalia or, or Thomas or anyone else uh, on the right, uh, but uh, that, the, that she felt the need to say that uh, is telling in, in a broader sense. Has that been done before? Have there other, been other, let's say, what we would call progressive uh, candidates that uh, talk the talk of, uh, of um, originalism, and then ultimately once, once they get the robe on, they become something else entirely? Well, Elena Kagan, uh, she her hearings were in 2010. Gosh, 12 years ago now, time, time flies. She said we're all originalists, but she kind of cabined that uh, by saying when there's explicit uh, uh, specific rules in the Constitution. So like the president has to be 35 years old, you know, things like that. Very, very clear. Um, uh, Judge Jackson, uh, her pronouncement on that were, was more sweeping um, and less um Less cabined, uh, so I guess the 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 norm has grown. And Kagan, you know, is um, is a textualist for sure, uh, but she's not an originalist. And um, one other notable thing about Kagan is that she sticks to precedent. This idea of stare decisis that sometimes we let uh, erroneous precedent uh, lie undisturbed because getting it right would unsettle uh, reliance interests and 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 the social foundations upon which the rest of the law is built. She uh, and Justice Thomas are the only ones who I think are consistent um, uh, from opposite sides. Kagan never votes to overturn precedent. uh, And Thomas uh, almost always, if he thinks the the decision is wrong, will vote to overturn it regardless of anything else. Everyone else on the court, um, you know, is uh, changes their mind depending on the merits of the case. So you made the case that it's now uh, uh, popular wisdom to sound like an originalist while on on uh, in the hearings, but ultimately revert back to your uh, your original um, uh, judicial philosophy. Um, have there any ever been? Uh, and you're the historian on this. Uh, you go into it much in your book. Have there been um, nominees by a particular party with the expectation that the judge would adhere to one uh, judicial philosophy, and then they either change that or drift? Left word or right word during their time as as um, as justices. 
The answer is yes. And it didn't start with you know, modern Republican appointments because there have been some disappointments. Uh, you know, David Souter uh, by George H.W. Bush, uh, um, John Paul Stevens appointed by Gerald Ford and became one of the more left-wing members. Um, uh, Dwight Eisenhower appointed Earl Warren and also Bill Brennan, you know, very uh, much uh, on the left. He said that those are his two biggest mistakes of his presidency, although the Brennan appointment was for political reasons on the eve of the 1956 re-election to help with the Northeastern Metropolitan and Catholic vote, which it did uh, for Ike running for re-election. But you don't have to look just in the last half century uh, or thereabouts. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, had the opportunity to appoint a lot of justices and was really trying as a as a remember in those parties in those days that a democratic republican he was trying to shift the court away from its capital f federalist bearings uh, and yet uh, nominee after nominee fell uh, under john marshall's sway so there have been you know frustrated presidents uh, uh, for 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 many years uh, abraham lincoln appointed his treasury secretary salmon p chase as chief justice partially to get him out of his hair, that whole team of rivals thing was getting old, uh, but also uh, to approve the uh, law under which the union financed the Civil War, the Legal Tender Act, which Chase, as Treasury Secretary, helped draft. But then as Chief Justice, he wrote the opinion holding it unconstitutional. So, you know, this is, uh, it's hard to predict which way justices are going to go. In modern times, I will tell you that the only uh, appointment by a Democratic president that perhaps turned out more conservatively than uh, uh, a lot of Democrats would have wished is Byron White, appointed by JFK in 1962, and he was sort of a uh, a centrist. Uh, you know, his his jurisprudence uh, you wouldn't really characterize as um, you know left or right. He sort of called them as he seen them, but he, but he definitely was more conservative than any other Democratic uh, appointee of the you know since I don't know. Uh, Truman or so. So this is precisely in your wheelhouse. Uh, you know that uh, uh, candidate uh, Brown Jackson is going to replace uh, Justice Breyer, uh, so that'll change the court. Um, we, you know, let's say those of us who don't study it for a living have seen it as six three, and therefore it will remain six three, uh, uh, right versus left. But you see uh, these justices on many different axes other than left and right. As you mentioned, there's a difference between originalists and textualists, difference between uh, those who respect precedent as um, uh, sacrosanct and those who, who sort of question, um, uh, let's say, what they perceive to be incorrect precedents. Um, if you can, uh, lay it for us on the map where... Um, from what you know about this new nominee, where she would fit, uh, maybe use terms left or right, or you know, where she fits amongst the other eight justices, if you can. Well, very crudely and generally speaking, I think she's to the left of Breyer, for whom she clerked and who she's replacing, and probably to the left of Kagan as well, somewhere somewhere alongside um, Sotomayor. Um, but um, uh, as you said, uh, that's you know, only kind of general on on average or or something like that to the extent that such characterizations even matter. Um, last year, the first full term of this new so-called hyper-conservative six to three court, that was not borne out. The justices were in all sorts of alignments. There were, I think, six different six to three alignments in the 12 six to three cases. There were five different five to four alignments. So there was not, uh, that kind of dominance was not there. We'll see what happens this term. There's still 
you know, the, the, the big cases, the, the Second Amendment case, the abortion case, some administrative law cases that could change the regulatory structure. Those are all going to come in June and we'll see if, if there is that kind of alignment. Uh, but, uh, you know, some people are calling it the 333 court with three justices on the left, uh, generally uh, Alito, Thomas and uh, Gorsuch on the right and uh, Roberts, Kavanaugh and Barrett in the middle or the center right. I, I don't know. Again, I think that's overly simplistic as well. Um, uh, Jackson, uh, having been a public defender and uh, with some of her sentencing practices, uh, perhaps will be with on on criminal justice, perhaps will be with Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch. Remember, that's sort of the left and the right against the middle in, in many Fourth Amendment cases, for example, uh, maybe uh, there, uh, maybe less deferential to government uh, in some other ways. Um, as a, you know, a, a civil libertarian or a, or a classical liberal, um, I like a Sotomayor more than I like a Merrick Garland, for example, even though you would think, oh, isn't Merrick Garland closer to the originalists? Well, it, it depends. I think on, on the kind of culture war, politically salient cases, there's no different among any of the Democratic appointees. But at least a Sotomayor is better than someone who defers to the government on law enforcement and other things like that as well, like Garland. Uh, on those Fourth Amendment cases or other civil liberties cases, so it, it just depends what you're uh, what you're looking at. I don't think there's going to be a much difference in how you know Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor, Jackson, now the late Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, John Paul Stevens, how they vote on you know the cases that make the the front pages really, but on on some of the lesser profile cases where uh, it is sort of the uh, the principled versus the pragmatic, if you will. Uh, where it could be, you have this horseshoe effect, um, uh, and 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 she could be in in places that that, that I would like. Now um, we're talking about these sort of likely positive uh, characteristics of this new uh, nominee uh, contributing to the the um, uh, to the new makeup. There are a lot of questions, and I, I'm not proud of what uh, some of the Republican senators uh, asked in many cases of of this candidate. Did any of her answers give you concern that you didn't have before the the um, hearings? As you say, you characterize it as a kabuki dance, perhaps devoid of any substance. But there were some questions about her her leniency when uh, uh, sentencing uh, uh, people involved in child pornography, or or uh, you know um, you know some of her her uh, legal rulings that uh, may have you know uh, who may have given you pause. Did you see anything of substance there? So some of the questioning, the, the the tone of it was a little over the top. I don't think it's inappropriate to ask a judicial nominee about her sentencing practices or uh, her views on the Equal Protection Clause or other that. That's where critical race theory was was coming in. Some of it obviously was grandstanding. All senators grandstand and bloviate. That's you know part of the senatorial okay. job. You want that video for your next re-election campaign or your presidential campaign to show that you're you know what kind of person you are and stuff like rile up the base and all that. Um, uh, I think it was a strategic error to focus on her uh, child porn or sex offender cases where she's not really uh, anomalous. A lot of judges, uh, you know, see there, and I don't want to get into the finer points, Andy McCarthy at National Review, no no uh, raging liberal uh, uh, went into a, a fair bit of this. But if you look at her overall sentencing practices, um, I, I think she seems a little bit more lenient, which you wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't be surprising for someone who's generally uh, a judge who's generally on the left. But, um, you know, whether that is disqualifying, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, to me, the kind of uh, uh, lack of demonstrated originalism and textualism is, is you know, beyond the lip service is, is more important than 
um, uh, you know, sentencing practices. And it's not like the Supreme Court is uh, either sentencing people or overturning too lenient or too strict sentences. That's not its job. There's a lot of discretion that Congress has given uh, district judges. But, um, uh, you know, that that's my view on on all that went down. I, you know, again, I don't think anybody's mind was changed one way or another by uh, those lines of questioning. How about the the question about what 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 is a woman is was that just a a cheap shot or was her answer just a stumble uh, or did we uh, touch on something substantive there? Well, clearly she felt political pressure because in 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 the the current zeitgeist uh, uh, on the left uh, there's apparently what a what a man and a woman is 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 an open question. But she could have answered that in a better way. And in fact, even even if one adopts the terms of the of the so-called woke left, it's not a biologist that determines what a woman is. It's how you identify, right? So she could have steered clear of the entire controversy by saying uh, an adult female human being. That's, you know, that would have been a perfectly good answer uh, and not taken a position in that particular culture war. Indeed, that, that, uh, that probably would be a more artful response. Um, now, we're, as you mentioned, she's uh, unlikely to get 60 votes. She's more likely to get 51, 52, or 53. There's some who point to the fact that uh, she's already been uh, through a few hearings and been approved by some of these Republican senators before, namely uh, someone like Lindsey Graham has voted for her uh, in the um, uh, Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, is it hypocritical to say, you know, thumbs up at one level, but thumbs down at another? Or um, is there some room for uh, changing one's mind? I mean, if... If someone so if you go the other way, if you thought she was uh, a no on the circuit court, I don't see why you would change your mind for the Supreme Court um, uh, unless she had accomplished a lot and done something to, to you know, substantively change someone's mind. But of course, she was only on the, the D.C. circuit less than a year. So that you know, Mitt Romney uh, actually voted no on uh, for her uh, D.C. circuit confirmation. So that's why I think he's in a tough spot if he if he starts uh, if he says that he's going to vote for her now. Um, going the other way, just say, well, you know, she's qualified for that level, but not for the next. You know, not every district judge uh, is equally qualified to be on, on the circuit court. Not every circuit court is equally qualified to be a judge is uh, qualified to be on the on the Supreme Court. So I think that's that's how you explain that away. So we're getting close to the end of our time together. I appreciate your, your valuable time. Uh, uh, so I want to get to what you're up to now. Uh, as you say, you're on um, on leave right now, but you've taken the job at Georgetown uh, as the executive director of the Center for the Constitution, I guess just a few more blocks across town from where you are or where you were. Um, what's your ambition there? Uh, are you, you know, what, what, let's fast forward a few years and you're uh, uh, creating a uh, New scholars, new scholarship, um, new events. What what are you going to produce there uh, while at Georgetown? Yeah, assuming I'm eventually reinstated, uh, and I can't comment on on the investigation process, of course. But uh, the idea is to um, build out the center both in substance and uh, in terms of uh, popular awareness and academic awareness uh, of uh, as it being a, a center for original public meaning uh, constitutional interpretation. Um, when people think of uh, how do you uh, interpret the Constitution, how do you be a good originalist, how do you take the law seriously, I want people to think of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. And that means enhancing its programming and developing new programs targeted not just at students and academics, but also practitioners, judges. There's a, a burgeoning judicial education project, publications, public events, uh, all of the above. Uh, and uh, 
Hopefully I'll get to do that uh, sooner rather than later. And uh, this year, the center is actually celebrating its 10th anniversary under the leadership of Randy Barnett. And hopefully, um, you know, some years down the line at its next big uh, anniversary, we'll, I'll be able to point to some uh, accomplishments in, in, in achieving uh, all of the above. And if we all live long enough, perhaps you'll have a few uh, students on the Supreme Court from, from that fine uh, organization. That, that would be exciting, right? Uh, your your lips to some future president's <laughs> ears. All right, good. And also, I want to congratulate you. Your, uh, your law school uh, edged out Harvard um, as third now, um, according to U.S. News and World Report, right? The uh, My law school alma mater, the University of Chicago, um, yes. Yeah, uh, yes. alma mater. Uh, things are returning to where they're supposed to be. When I was applying to law school, I think University of Chicago was was second uh, then as well. So um, uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 the world is healing, I guess we can say. <laughs> That's good. You got the bronze. Congratulations. So I want, want to get that in there. Uh, okay. Well, thank you very much for joining uh, our uh, listeners here, Ilya. You're, uh, you're, you're a fund of information and, and uniquely qualified to opine on this, this particular topic. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, Joe. Take care. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support the podcast and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or suggestions or comments about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.